Hello, listeners. We recorded this a couple weeks ago and have kind of forgot about it because some other things have uh, taken up our attention right now. (laughs) So if you're wondering why we make zero reference to the coronavirus or social distancing or uh, that we're just staying in our apartment for two weeks, potentially longer, that is why. Uh, But we wanted to edit it and get it out there. We are going to be doing a couple episodes uh, specifically focusing on our quarantine and pandemics in general that I think will be kind of fun to listen to, hopefully. Anyway, enjoy this one and hope everyone is staying safe out there. Do you take this woman to watch movies? And do you take this man to talk about them? I now pronounce you podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of Wife Watches. I'm your host, Jason, and joining me as always, looking for a syringe because she can't tell the difference between heroin and cocaine, it's my wife, Courtney. Hello! Happy to be here. Happy to be um, recognized on the podcast as that, whatever it is. This is a podcast where I show my wife movies that are culturally or cinematically important that she's missed unintentionally, sometimes willfully. Yeah. Your your energy levels are pretty high. Are you telling me that or are you asking? I'm I'm asking. They seem good. You just took took a rest. I took a rest. I didn't take a nap. Yeah. But now I got my Diet Coke. Yeah, we're set up. I got my good boy. Sonic sponsored Route 44s. Yeah. Do you say route or route? I say Route 44. And we have Jimmy John's. I bet I bet people say route and route 44. You know what? They probably do. Because yeah. people say route and route differently. All the time. What movie are we watching tonight? We are watching Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And as always, I like to start off the podcast kind of interrogating you. Yeah. What do you know about this movie? Absolutely nothing. Thank but, you for asking. But you know that it was made by Quentin Tarantino. I knew that. Mm, yeah, I've known that since probably you told me a couple months ago. I guess what kind of baggage are you coming into this? Or like zero, really, truly zero. I know that people dress up like them for Halloween, but I don't know what that significance is. I know Uma Thurman's in this. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. What is your relationship to Quentin Tarantino? Um, I've seen Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's it. What did you think of those movies? Loved them. Did you love? Glorious... Did you love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I thought you were kind of lukewarm on that. Oh yeah, I was. I was just thinking of Inglorious Bastards. I, that's one of my top five favorite movies. Top time. five. Yeah. That's incredible. I love that movie. It's so good. Look, me too. Once Upon a <laughs> Time in Hollywood came out last summer, and I wanted you to see it with me. I correctly, I would say, decided to prep you with Inglorious. One hundred percent. That was one of your best decisions. Well, that's great. Because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood turned out to be a lot like Inglourious Bastards. Yes. In a way that I don't want to share if you haven't seen either of those movies. Yeah. Honestly, you should just go watch those movies. Together. Yeah. Well, that's great. You're going in this with as as fresh of eyes as basically you can. Yeah. So I've seen this movie one time. There will probably be elements of this movie that don't surprise you because you are familiar with at least some of Quentin Tarantino's, I guess, I don't know, cliches, trademarks. Okay. But I'm genuinely curious what you'll think of these movies, of this movie. Well, this will be a good exercise for me, too, because it'll be a chance for me to kind of re-examine how I feel about it. But you really like Django. I, yeah, I like Django. There's one that I can't remember its name. I know what you're thinking of. 
But my favorite is Inglorious Bastards. Oh, it is? But you're thinking of Jackie Brown. Yes. I think Jackie Brown is his, is his most underrated movie. Okay. And, man, I just really liked it. Okay. The year is 1994. Oh. I actually didn't know it was made then. I Saw the Sign by Ace of Base was the... I Saw the Sign. This was another song in 19... Or this was another movie that we watched in 1994. What else we I've, watched in I've sung that before. It was The Little Women. Because okay. I've, I've sung that song. I recognized... It felt like home. Well, I have some new 1994 facts for you. Okay. Just to help place you firmly when you well, were Well, because I did, I did the last 1994 one. Oh, you're right. Bill Clinton is the president. Sure. Tanya Harding this year wins the National Figure Stating Championship title, but is stripped of it following an attack on her rival, Nancy Kerrigan. The Channel opened this year on May 6th. The Channel? Between England and France. Oh. Am I saying that right? The English Channel, yeah. That's right. The Channel Tunnel. Oh, the Channel. Yeah. That's real. <laughs> That's really what it's called. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, not all of us are as people of the world and traveled. I didn't okay? say it. You did. O.J. Simpson flees the police in his white Ford Bronco this wow. year. Are you Are you there right now in 1994? Yeah, I'm Is that, here. You're, I'm here. You're good? I want to give you a little bit of background. So if you were following the film industry, what would you know going into this movie? Quentin Tarantino. He has just come off of, it's two years removed from his first feature debut, which is Reservoir Dogs, which you've never seen. Never. It is a huge hit. It was screened in 1992 at Sundance and was immediately just, people people loved it and were like, wow, this guy has really got something. Although it was controversial for its depictions of violence and use of profanity, which have become a staple of this yeah. director. I would say this kind of set the template for a lot of things that are essentially Quentin Tarantino. So it was also had a crime setting. A lot of his films deal with that. And there's a reliance on pop culture and anachronistic uh, uses of style and music to set the tone for the, and kind of set the tone for the rest of his career. Okay. So a lot of those elements you'll see in a lot of his movies. Okay. But his, he draws a lot of his style from a lot of like Westerns from the seventies and spaghetti oh, Westerns. Okay. Yeah. Which there was a lot of that in, in Glorious Bastards, but in more, some of his other movies too. Like Django Unchained, is there some more? Yeah. And the okay. Kill Bills. Okay. Kill Bills are especially very stylized that way. Gotcha. But Reservoir Dogs was considered like a, a classic of independent film. Um, following that, he optioned two other scripts, which was True Romance and Natural Born Killers. Following the success of Reservoir Dogs, Tony Scott directed True Romance. It's pretty good, I think. People love that movie, like critically. And then Oliver Stone directed Natural Born Killers, which is also critically well received. I personally, it's one of the few movies I have never finished. Mm. because I disliked it so much. Wow. The okay. style of filmmaking that it's in. Okay. It's very neurotic, very... I don't want to use the word chaotic, because... Jason, for all our listeners out there, Jason has quite a problem with chaotic universes, as he calls them. Yeah. So things like the labyrinth are oh. off limits. Like, What's one yesterday you told me? You were like, I can't watch that. It's too chaotic. The world is too chaotic for me. I think I was just describing like movies that were like surreal, no. like The Lighthouse. Oh yeah, yeah, it was The Lighthouse. Like, I've I've been trying to pinpoint what it was, like what I watched. I I remember two things in particular. There okay. was like a movie about like called like Red Robin or Rockin' Robin. Okay. There was a cartoon about like a there's a flood. Ugh, this sounds vaguely familiar. And there's like a rooster who needs to sing, and okay. there's like a kid, and there's like the owls are after these rats, and the rats. Ah, are... yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The Unforgiving World. <laughs> 
and it's just scary. And then also Rocco's Modern Life. Yeah, I, I could, I wasn't allowed to watch that. It was just like no matter what Rocco did, his life was just terrible, and <laughs> there was there was very dreamlike quality to it, and didn't really make sense. Nightmare. Oh yeah, you're describing like a fever dream. Yes, I don't like those. <laughs> Nobody does. The rules aren't. No, some people really like that. That they, oh, they I appreciate you're talking those about, elements. Like fever dreams. Nobody oh really no. Likes fever yeah. Dreams. So I really didn't like Natural Born Killers. If you do, that's fantastic. Okay. Off the back of that, he ended up making this film. Uh, selling those scripts, he's able to finance Pulp Fiction. Tarantino himself, I personally think he's kind of smug, and I've kind of had a sort of held a grudge against Tarantino because I've always felt he's kind of. Self-important and self-indulgent. Yeah. You remember like some of the speeches, the yeah. acceptance speeches he gave for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. On a personal level, I don't, I do not like him. Uma Thurman doesn't like him either. Yeah, well, they kind of had a falling out. Okay. I think she was uncomfortable filming some of the action set pieces in one of the Kill Bills, and he just kind of made her do it anyway. Yeah. I think that was like the crux of their falling out. But anyway, I've kind of, I've kind of revisited a lot of his movies and come to appreciate them more and like kind of separate them from him. But his, his kind of like rise to where he is is really interesting. You could describe him as every film nerd's fantasy. He worked as a movie rental clerk. He has no like formal schooling or training. He was just basically a jerk who watched a bunch of movies and then went on to create some of the most influential movies of the last 30 years. Wow. Like, I have to give him he's that like credit, a, even though I don't like, like him. Thing. He's just very gifted at what he does, and I think that's kind of how he's able to get away with, I think, being such an ass. Yeah. Um, and his, his harshest critics point out that he rips off and repackages a lot of the things. So, like, he'll steal a lot of elements from cinema from all the past decades and kind of reassemble them. And I think that's a legitimate criticism. How much you think that's stealing or just him paying respect and homage and understanding film history mm-hmm. kind of depends on how you feel about him. Yeah, because I was going to say, that doesn't really, that's not like a, that's a weird criticism because it's basically what everyone, that's what, like, artists do. Oh, but he... He, he really like he blatantly. really does it. It's blatant, and that's where it's like, well, if it's so blatant, it's not like he's trying to get away with it. I think you know what I mean. That's where like there's kind of a debate yeah. of like, is okay. he just ripping off stuff, or is he like respect the power that cinema has? He really is very gifted. A wonder kid, especially screenwriting. Mm. But he's a really good director too. But I feel like his his strength, like his greatest strength, is in able to craft interesting characters who speak very naturally. That was something that's very different about his movies, especially in the 90s when these came out, was his characters spoke about mundane things and they just like dumb things in pop culture, which is how people talk. Mm. Basically, if you see a character like that now in a movie, that's probably some kind of Tarantino influence on that Interesting. person. So he's like watching movies in the 80s and stuff like well, that's he, where he got stuff from? He grew up on like all sorts of film 70s. and his a lot of the movies that in, influence him are kind of like B-movie, like he loves like black exploitation films from the 70s uh, like spaghetti westerns from the 60s and 70s oh, okay. so there's a lot of like those campier yeah. stylistic elements that are spread throughout his movie okay gotcha i was gonna leave you with these two uh, quotes i guess great about pulp fiction going into it so i want you to stay as as fresh as you can but i will say this movie was insanely well received okay roger ebert called it the most influential movie of the decade And then in the early 2000s, Time Magazine wrote that it was unquestionably the most influential American movie of the 90s. Whoa. Because I think when I first saw it, I was was not as impressed because a lot of the things that were very new and maybe groundbreaking from this movie, I've seen ripped off in a million movies. Okay. So just go in thinking like, imagine this all being very new and a lot of the things that are like the stylistic choices that you've seen in a million other movies. 
like a very new experience to an audience member in 1994. Okay. And I, but I want you to think, do you agree with this? Is this, does this live up to what this hype is? Okay. I can do that. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right, let's do it. (laughs) We're back. We watched it. We're done. We're done. We're done. Courtney, you've now watched Pulp Fiction. I have. What did you think about it? And we haven't talked about it yet. We ran right into this room from the couch. Courtney fell over. She somehow (laughs) collapsed her chair. How many stars out of four would you give it? I'd give it four stars. I thought it was great. It was like a little bit violent. Um, Did that surprise you though? No. There, the violence in Inglorious Bastards makes me queasier. Okay, yeah, I get that. It was early in his career, so he didn't have the budget or like the mechanics to really show violence like you do now. Yeah. So a lot of actual violent things happening were kind of done slightly off camera. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah. I think that was to cover like the hide like limitations of showing. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I really like how he weaves his way through a story. That's the best part of his movies. Yeah. I really like that kind of payoff at the end. I like how it's segmented too. It feels like it's not as long as it actually is. It is long. Yeah, it's two hours and 35 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like when you're cutting like that, story by story, and it doesn't just like meander, I feel like, for me at least, I don't feel the time as much. I was thinking about that too, actually, because... So, the narrative is told out of sequence. Not, Not much. Yeah. But what was helpful with that, if that movie was told sequentially, you would feel it meandering more. Yeah. But since we already know, I'm assuming anyone listening to this has watched the movie. Otherwise, most of what we're going to say might not make any sense. Yeah, and be a spoiler. Yeah, so let's just say everything we're saying is a spoiler for the sake of not having to go through like beat by beat what the plot was. But Bruce Willis's story, when that ends and he drives away on the motorcycle, that's effectively chronologically the end of the movie. But there's still probably about 45 minutes left. Okay, yeah. And so going back and filling in gaps of what happened, since you already know how it ends, even though you spend more time in the middle of like the following up of the shootout in that apartment and then they go with with Harvey Keitel as the cleaner, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's not going anywhere yeah. because you already know where the story's going. Yeah. And then especially ending back at that same diner, when you realize you're back at the same diner, you're like, oh, this is the climax of the movie. We're going to end here because it's like the symmetry of yeah. ending where we were beginning. Yeah. Like even if you're having a good time, sometimes you're sometimes you're just anxious in a movie of like, how long is this? Exactly. And you don't feel that because it's told out of order and you know where it is going, even if you've never seen it. Yeah. So I'm hesitant to admit this because I have for about a year and a half, one of our friends, Chris, shout out to Chris, friend of the podcast, <laughs> have argued about Pulp Fiction whether it's a good movie or not, because I did not like this the first time I saw it. Oh. And I really liked it tonight. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think it was one of those instances where I caught it too early, I guess. It was one of the first Tarantino movies I saw. Oh. And I was really put off by the violence. One disturbing sequence in particular in the basement. Like Who wouldn't be put off by that? I did not like it. I don't think I understood what its cultural impact was. So I didn't like have really much appreciation for what it was doing. I don't 
know that I do either. But it was funnier this time. It's a, it's really funny. I don't remember. I remember thinking like, I don't really like this, and I don't really, I don't, I don't see what, what did people see in this? It's kind of how I felt when I was when I watched it the first time, and even the parts that I remember disturbing me. I don't know what this says about me, but they did not. It didn't upset me like it did before. Well, probably because you've seen it before. That's true. But it also, I I don't, it didn't seem like it was, it went as far as I remember. Oh, I was, I was disturbed by it. Like, well, I, I mean, to be, everyone. To be clear. Yeah. yeah everyone I, would be disturbed by, should we just say what? Like, yeah. It's essentially a, like. Like a gang rape on. Yeah. The, on, uh, on Ving Rhames' character. Yeah. I think why I'm not as bothered Marcellus. by it, the disturbing nature of it doesn't like linger like it did the first time. Because Bruce Willis kind of saves the day. Yeah. I, and I, I just remember it lingering on that sequence more. It made me wonder if I revisited Reservoir Dogs, if I'd like that more. Because I similarly, oh. there's there's another sequence that's kind of like a torture scene. Oh, okay. That also... In Reservoir Dogs. Yes, that really bothered me. But I'm not sure if I revisited it, if I would change my mind. Because it feels more sadistic in okay. Reservoir Dogs. So I kind of still think that would just... It kind of soured me on the entire movie. Yeah, I, my opinion really turned around on okay. this. I also wanted to ask you if there was anything in the movie that you recognized as something no, iconic. No, I was looking for those things, and I, besides Uma Thurman, the only thing I recognized. <gasps> That's really interesting. Well, because, I, I mean, like, when we watch Star Wars, I'm sure so much of that, yeah. you were like, oh, okay, I yeah, have seen this parodied not, my whole life. This has just not been, like, in my line of vision. I think the only Ever. thing I would have recognized is maybe when um, Uma Thurman and John Travolta dance. I feel really dumb about this, but like I don't know what was in the briefcase, and I feel like I might know. I feel like that's like something I missed and I didn't mean to miss. No, that. So there's actually been when I was looking up information on this movie to talk about with you tonight. There has been so much analysis over the meaning of things in this movie. Oh. Nitpicking little different things and not only things that like Quentin Tarantino has like talked openly about like what things mean, but also like reading meaning into a lot of things. And one thing of debate is like what is in the briefcase. Okay. So there's been like a handful of theories. There's one theory that there was there was a heist in Reservoir Dogs that's like the plot is centered around stealing these diamonds. Uh. That they're the diamonds that are in the briefcase because there's actually like this larger theory too, and if we watch more Tarantino movies, maybe I'll go into it, but like that they're all somehow related to each other. In the same like universe. Yeah, but some of them are like films within the Tarantino universe. Like the Kill Bills are supposed to be like the films that these characters are watching. Got it. Stuff like that. Okay. What I thought was a pretty out there theory, apparently there's some kind of myth or legend that I don't know where this comes from, but that the devil to steal your soul steals it out of the back of your head. Uh-huh. And Ving Rhames' character, Marcellus, has a, a bandit on the back of his head. So some people think it is Marcellus's soul is in the briefcase, and that's why he wants it back. Mm. I think that uh-huh. I personally think that's really yeah. stupid. <laughs> I think that's garbage. Well, Tarant- that's fine for his like him wearing a band aid. Well, uh, it's Tarantino's talked about it's because he was shaving his head and he actually cut it, so sure. he, he like left it there. And Tarantino's like, "Oh no, leave it there." That's kind of like a funny, just like a detail that's okay. interesting to have. Yeah. Oh, and to add the credence to that theory, the combination on the, the briefcase is six six six. There's like these all these things of people reading oh. into like why that is, and when it lights up, it like lights up your face when you open the briefcase. Tarantino has just said that there's no explanation for the contents. It's just purely a MacGuffin. A pure plot device. He said originally it was going to contain diamonds, 
but that he and uh, his the his writing partner that came up with the story with him, Richard Avery, that they were just like, that's kind of generic. So huh. let's just not explain what it is. Oh, that's interesting because I, I was like, how did I miss? I must have missed something. Like at the end, I was like, oh, well, it has to be like that guy who like raped him, like his head or his like, some, like something weird. I don't know. That's what I thought. Didn't um, think through that one. Well, you got me. I don't remember if I put any significance on what was in the briefcase the first time I saw it. I'll tell you, this this viewing really benefited because I read a bunch of stuff and I listened to a podcast about last, this show. When was the last time you saw this? Nine, <laughs> I saw it in 2014. Okay. I think a lot of the things were complete. I completely lost on me. Okay. I did not particularly find the dialogue that enjoyable when I first saw it. Yeah, I didn't really either. No, now I, I thought it was really well, funny. it's my first one and your second one. But I did think it was funny. That's what I'm saying. Like, I didn't I didn't really think... I didn't walk away being like, wow, it was really, something really I, clever dialogue or so, really fun. Something I kept thinking about was how you told me, like, he was using, like, conversation tidbits. Yeah. The way that they're really spoken in real life. And it's funny because no one actually talks like that. It was closer to real life than people were used to. It was mostly that they were just talking about the most mundane whatever. Just arguing about weird random stuff. Like a really famous exchange in, in the movie that's really like stuck with people is when he's like... But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little different. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there. It's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f- quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it a Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> What they call a wobble. I don't know. I didn't go on a burger king. Like just stuff like that. Just random conversations that fill your day. And then there's actually random bursts of, in this case, violence. But in like your regular life, quick moments of actual importance. But the rest is just yeah. kind of just sa- sameness. Yeah. I think like emulating that kind of okay. real, real life yeah. is what people really found like really refreshing. There were a couple things that I thought were now seem like, oh, that's such a cliche. Like or what? when... Uma Thurman when they pull up to the d- the diner and she's like if you're not going to come in here then you're a total and then she with her oh. hand makes a square but like on screen is like makes the square shape of the podcast I listened to and like a lot of the things that I read most people's reaction was something like I didn't know you could really make a movie like this oh so there's a lot of that okay I have a question do you think John Travolta was wearing a wig or his real hair I don't know I think it was his real hair you think that was real yeah, but maybe not all of it. At least the front part. There was no netting. He does some wild stuff. But like, so does Uma Thurman and she's wearing a wig. Yeah, that's clearly a wig. Yeah, and it stays on. One more piece about the briefcase. Okay. It contained a hidden orange light bulb. So that's why whenever he opened it, it produced that like glow. Oh. That's how they got that effect. So Tarantino and his, this is his writing friend, Roger Avery. Roger Avery. Wanted to originally make a short, but then they realized it was probably hard to get a, ma- get a short made. So they're like, let's make a trilogy of films. 
and each trilogy was going to focus on like, or each film in the trilogy would focus on a different character, a different storyline. Ultimately, this was kind of like compressed into the different narratives that are thrown around in this movie. Sure. I guess if you had to consolidate the th- in, into three narratives, you'd got like one with Vince Vega. Yeah. Which is John Travolta's character. You have the other story with Butch Coolidge. Yeah. Which is Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis, who you reacted to when you saw his name in yeah, the credits. Yeah, I didn't know he was, I didn't know any of these people were in it. Is there a certain storyline that you enjoyed more than the other, or... I didn't love the Bruce Willis one. My favorite part was when they killed the guy in the car. Yeah. And then they had to go to Quentin Tarantino's house to clean up the mess. And Harvey Keitel comes in. That whole part's really funny. I agree. I I love that whole sequence. I was wondering... Oh, if you were making your own movie, would you put yourself into it? If you had the opportunity and you liked acting? Here's the thing. I personally really enjoy acting i would hope that i would fight the urge to maybe like a cameo right yes yeah yeah his was a little more like like an alfred hitchcock like blink and you'll miss it yeah quentin tarantino is not good in this movie did you think he was no i think he sucks (laughs) i feel like i've seen him in other things but he so if he was like i'm sorry i interrupted well he just has some cameos in some of his movies his delivery really distracted me yeah he looks so he is so young in this movie. But I was thinking Margot Robbie, I think is, she's not much older than I am. And I was thinking she was like four or five when this movie was made. Yeah. And like watching her and him in the awards circuit kind of like, I don't know why that's weird, but he's like very young in this movie. It was just like kind of jolting. I did not like the girl who was with Bruce Willis. She kind of was annoying, but some things were funny. Yeah. Like when she... At yeah, the end of that story when she comes out, she just gets kind of like whiny and like kind of... If I would have trimmed any part of the movie, I would have... That's the first place I would have taken the axe Yeah, to. there's not really a ton. I mean, I guess you need him to go back to his apartment, but... Yeah, but they spent a lot of time just kind of in that hotel. Yeah, it was like she was clearly kind of trying to be like something that you dislike. Mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn. Like a precocious naivete. Yes. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, that's kind of annoying. I know. Thank you. You're right. Audrey Hepburn is annoying. I didn't say that. I don't agree. Well. But I I started to understand where... Audrey Hepburn and Sabrina. I would maybe give her the most... No, the most pass I'd give her in is Wait Until Dark. Oh, sure. Next, maybe Sabrina. I actually like her in My Fair Lady. She's great in Sabrina. She's fine in Sabrina. And you don't like breakfast at Tiffany's. That's when it's like most dialed to 11. I get that. I get that. But I... Actually, you know another one I don't like her in? What? Roman Holiday. Oh, that's dialed to 11. That's, that's like what, her most precocious. That's what I'm saying. I also didn't love How to Steal a Million Dollars or How to Steal how a to Million. How to Steal a Million. I understand. Yeah. She's great in charade. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So we both have, we can see each other's side. There's highs and lows. Did you know that Quentin Tarantino... Um, originally was debating whether he was going to play the character he ended up playing or Eric Stoltz's character. Oh. And he kind of told Eric Stoltz, he's like, look, I have you for either one of these roles. And he was like, either way, you're going to be wearing a bathrobe. <laughs> but the the deciding factor was he wanted to be the one who was actually directing the scene with Uma Thurman where where they oh. pump her back to life. Eric Stoltz would have been great in both of those Tarantino would have been very annoying as that character. Oh, he just is not very, yeah. He was very distracting. He wasn't very good. Sorry, Quentin. No. You write good movies. Eric Stoltz was great in that role. We love Eric Stoltz. We Why do. Is that? I don't know. Justice for Eric Stoltz. <laughs> I love Eric Stoltz. Tarantino, when speaking about the way he broke down the film structure, 
he said, one thing that's cool is that by breaking up the linear structure, when I watch the film with an audience, it does break the audience's alpha state. It's like all of a sudden, I gotta watch this. I gotta pay attention. You can almost feel everybody moving in their seats. It's actually fun to watch an audience in some ways chase after a movie. And I agree with that. It made it more engaging. Probably with anything. Anything that like asks you to do some work on your end. It makes, uh, yeah, there's more of a reward at the end typically. Not, I guess not always. Because yeah. it doesn't always, it's also, it depends on how well it's done. That's true. Because there are some things where it's just confusing, which is bad. Like you yeah. don't want to, you don't want to be confused. But I would say I would, I would rather something be told out, out of sequence typically. If there's a purpose for it. I think the, like there was clearly a purpose for this in that. I feel like it just flowed better. Yeah. Yeah, so he originally wanted to make a, like a film that was some somehow based on these like pulp elements from like these old pulp books. And it kind of goes like the, their very first thing is like an explanation of what pulp means to kind of get you placed so that you're aware like you're going to be watching old versions of very similar stories. In fact, he even talked about how he wanted to take ideas that you'd seen a million times in other movies or other stories and kind of put a new twist on him. He says that the idea was basically to take the oldest chestnuts you've ever seen when it comes to crime stories, the oldest stories in the book, you know, Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife, the oldest story about the guy's got to go out with the big man's wife and don't touch her. You've seen it a zillion times. I'm using old forms of storytelling and then purposely having them run awry. Part of the trick is that to take these movie characters, these genre characters, and these genre situations, and actually apply them to some of the real-life rules and see how they unravel. <laughs> Originally, they tried to sell this movie to TriStar. The script was brought to Miramax, who was formerly an independent studio that had just been acquired by Disney. And Harvey Weinstein, co-chairman of Miramax, along with his brother Bob, were instantly enthralled by the script, and the company picked it up. So Pulp Fiction is Miramax's first project to get a green light. Wow. After the Disney acquisition. Oh my gosh. It's actually kind of like a messy scenario because Tarantino, the Weinstein brothers' names are all over Tarantino's movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're both making the same face. That's gross. <laughs> when he got made the deal with Miramax to do this movie, Tarantino was given like final approval on all casting decisions. Okay. He had originally wanted Michael Madsen, who had been in Reservoir Dogs, but Madsen was already had scheduling conflicts, so they brought in John Travolta. And this is credited in a lot a way of reviving John Travolta. I was gonna say, what was John? Because Tra John Travolta was big in the '70s, mm -hmm. and then just kind of died off in the '80s a little bit. Yeah, it, I mean, this revitalized his career. Like he was back. A lot of Tarantino, uh, some of his like casting decisions are very much like this. It kind of reminds me of Christopher Nolan, actually. Nolan and Tarantino both pick like actors who had their big heyday like 10, 20, 30 years in the past, and bring them into like supporting roles or lead roles that really kind of add more juice to their career. Like Christian Bale? No, Christian Bale, he, I mean, he, he was doing fine, but like with Christopher Nolan, like Eric Roberts has like a supporting role in The Dark Knight. That's Julie Roberts' brother. Who uh, is he in The Dark Knight? He's Salvatore Moroni. He's like a crime boss. Oh. He, Tom Berenger is a supporting role in Inception, and he was like a pretty big deal in the 80s and then kind of dropped off. Like he picks these like older actors who kind of just like hit a, like a stall for a while. Interesting. And kind of rejuvenates their career a little bit. Huh. Not like this, though. This had, like, a huge impact. And Bruce Willis was kind of the same. Like, he had been in a, a little bit Tarantino of a... Tarantino or... Travolta, sorry. Yeah, this this kind of, like, was a boost to Travolta's career because okay. of how successful it was. Same with Bruce Willis, who'd also kind of been in a little bit of a slump, too. And he was by far the biggest name they got involved. But it also kind of, like, put him back on the up and up. Apparently, he only spent 18 days on set filming wow. the things that he needed to do. 
What about Uma Thurman? Was this one of her first? Or yeah, was... this was one of her first things. So it... she wasn't big. No. And apparently she was kind of like nervous about this movie, primarily because of the rape scene. It kind of had to be coaxed more in like Tarantino kind of, ha- he like really wanted her for the part. Yeah. And he had to really like convince her like. Oh, he's got to be so schmoozy. Like. Well, well, here's the thing. He had just come off of Reservoir Dogs, which people loved. He'd written the scripts for True Romance and Natural Born Killers, which people knew like he was really, like I, I think people wanted to be a part of it. But it's just when you read it on pay, on the page, you're kind of like, I don't know about this, man. Yeah. And now he's one of the most bankable directors. Like there's very few directors left like him where his name alone gets people to the theaters. There's wow. like very few directors that are like him left. Tarantino wrote the part of Jules with Samuel Jackson in mind. Uh, Miramax originally wanted Holly Hunter or Meg Ryan for the role of Mia. Meg Ryan? I know. Who, who wanted that? Miramax. So like the Weinstein studio. I could see Holly Hunter. Gosh, that's weird. I know. It's And now that's like one of Uma Thurman's most recognizable roles. <sighs> yeah. Well, and apparently she was like kind of plastered all over all of the promotional materials for this movie. And it's funny because she is the only thing I knew about it and she's in the movie for like 20 minutes. I mean, she's uh, I in know. it, but her part that you is like It's like so one it's like one section or chapter of the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. very small. I know. There was no film score composed for the movie. Instead, Tarantino used like an assortment of, obviously you heard it, like surf music, rock and roll, soul. I mean, he wasn't the first filmmaker to use like an assortment of famous songs from different times, but he really like puts a lot of thought and like precision into picking like which songs. In a way, it's much more common now. The ones that really spring to mind are like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Like James Gunn like is really meticulous about which songs go for what and like even like Baby Driver. Oh yeah. Christopher Walken's watch scene. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Chandler Lindauer plays the young Bruce Willis character. He had to sit through the speech delivered by Christopher Walken. Because of his young age, he had no clue what Walken was saying, including the use of adult language. I don't know if you noticed this, but at one point, Walken appeared to pause during the end of his explanation of the story. After seven years, I was sent home to my family. Now, little man. I gave the watch to you. This is because Christopher Walken had forgotten his next line before recovering in time to make it look as though he paused on purpose, but they decided to leave the error in the film. (laughs) Like, and actually, there were a list of some other ones. I don't remember what they were, but there's some other takes where people would flub lines and Tarantino decided to use them because it felt more authentic. Yeah, I like when people do that. That scene was so funny. (laughs) And I actually wrote this down because I didn't realize that he'd said, The way your dad looked at it, this watch... It was your birthright, so he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. He said he wore it up his ass? <laughs> oh, so good. So did you understand that Uma Thurman like found the cocaine in Vince's pocket. Yes. Or, sorry, the heroin thought it was cocaine. Oh. So when they're at the diner, she goes to the bathroom to powder her nose, literally. And then she finds the heroin in his jacket. So she thinks it's cocaine. She she snorts it. Right. And that's why she I didn't realize it wasn't cocaine. No, it was heroin. She's like... Uh, that's why I was confused when he... I mean, I'm talking like like I know like what, what I'm talking <laughs> well, about. Well, here's but... the thing. Yeah, I don't know anything about drugs. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> 
I was confused though when he when he's like, Can, "Do you mind if I shoot up? Do you shoot up heroin?" And then he like does the melty thing with the spoon, and then he does shoot it up. And I was oh, thinking yeah. to myself, that looks like what you would do with heroin. That's what you would do with heroin. It's because right? he was buying heroin from that guy, from that drug dealer. I know, but I thought he was a coke dealer for some reason. Oh no! Were they talk? They were talking about coke a little. He bit. does. He says he's like he's that like whole he's thing like back and forth very fast. He's like coke is dead. Heroin's a new thing. Oh oh oh! So I really, I really was the person you introduced. I couldn't tell the difference between coke and heroin. <laughs> <laughs> the shot of the syringe. Uh, Vincent plunging the syringe into Mia's chest was filmed by having John Travolta pull the needle out, then running the film backwards. Whoa. I want to watch that again. So apparently it says, watch carefully and you'll see a mark on Mia's chest disappear when she's revived. Weird. Yeah. That's why you covered your eyes when he was getting ready to stick her with it. That's why I always like, watch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, coward. I, I don't want to see somebody stab someone in the chest. I well, I actually, again, they, they pulled, they were very careful with what they actually showed. Yeah. Like as far as like actual contact of things touching people. I didn't know people. that was going to happen. I, don't, I didn't know it was going to be that way. I actually didn't think I knew that was a thing until I watched this movie the first time. I didn't either. Is that what you do when somebody's ODing? ODing adrenaline? heroin? I guess that that scene is funny. Yeah, this movie was a lot funnier than I than I thought it was the first it's time so, I watched it. It's so dark. <laughs> it's very funny though. the The reception was very strong for this movie. It has ninety two percent Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. It premiered in nineteen ninety four at Cannes Film Festival. It was a major critical and commercial su- success. It won the Palme d'Or. I don't know. I don't know how to say that, but it is the festival's top prize that year. Oh. It's what Joker won last year. The budget was $8.5 million, and it brought in roughly $213 million worldwide. Whoa. It was phenomenally successful. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, which it won. Travolta, Jackson, and Thurman were all nominated for awards. Not only that, this movie just had like a huge impact on basically everything film-related at the time. Its development, marketing, and distribution... Uh, had a sweeping effect on independent cinema. It's widely regarded as Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece, with particular praise for screenwriting. My favorite Tarantino movie is Inglorious Bastards. But do you like this one more? No. But would you say this is his best one? Uh, I could see how it would be his best one. Just because of like the influence of it? Yeah, like it, it reached... kind of was like nobody had ever really done something like this before, had they? Well, and if you're talking like Apex Mountain, like him at yeah. the height of his power and like what he did and Now it's kind of like you know what you're getting with yeah. the Tarantino movie. It's kind of like just He's a known quantity now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I like Inglorious Bastards best because... God, that movie's just so good. It's so good. I, I love that I movie. I don't even know. I don't even know what else to say about it. Something I've noticed in a lot of his movies that... Used to great on me, but now I think I appreciate a lot more is the dialogue. He really draws out his scenes. Like oh, yeah. the dialogue in the scenes. And I noticed it more in this movie, but I think he really perfects it in Inglorious Bastards because the stakes of that movie, the tension just so yeah. high. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I really think that's like the best of all of his qualities. It's also subject matter that you are immediately on board with and you know what's going on. Yeah. You're dropped in media res. Mm-hmm. Like this one, it took a minute to get into and to figure out. I mean, I knew that it was going to be segmented, but it kind of took a minute to figure out the characters and like, well, that doesn't matter. Characters don't matter. But like to figure out where the movie's going. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And this one is, I mean, like Inglorious Bastards is kind of like, 
you have an idea of where the movie is going. Yeah, the, where the movie like ultimately like Do you know where, where the conflict has to lead. Yes. Yeah, this could really go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I really think it's it's his the best of all of his qualities. Although I you know I do really love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. But I, it's got to be Inglorious like Bastards it. for me. Some other weird effects of this movie. So it it dramatically altered indie cinema. According to Variety, the trajectory of where Pulp Fiction went from cans and then was just a huge commercial success forever changed the game of independent cinema. It cemented Miramax's place as like the reigning indie superpower. Mm. And like Pulp Fiction became the Star Wars of independence, exploding expectations for what an indie film could do at the box office. It also, this is kind of confusing to me, but it transformed in the industry's attitudes towards indies. So student studio executives suddenly woke up to the fact that grosses and market share, which got all depressed, were not the same as profits. So once the studios realized that they could exploit the economies of small scale, they more or less gave up buying or remaking films themselves and either bought the distributors directly as Disney had with Miramax or started their own, copying Miramax's marketing and distribution strategies. That's kind of where you had like Fox creating Fox searchlights. Oh. In a way that I didn't realize at the time, it just dramatically changed the landscape of how independent cinema is made. Yeah. It's honestly pretty nuts that like this movie did. And you also saw an increasing number of actors that went back and forth between expensive studio films and big budget films and lower budget independent style movies, uh, which was like a watershed moment for movie stars. And that usually that came with Bruce Willis's decision, because he was at the time one of Hollywood's highest paid actors to be in Pulp Fiction. Mm. So you saw that shift in like actors and actresses and what kind of roles they could take on. Which is like now it's everyone is in everything well now i think you even saw a more even more dramatic shift in the last five to ten years of tv used to be like a lesser quantity and now you have people going back and forth and i really think the thing that truly changed that was true detective how that first season with matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson was phenomenally great and well received and people really saw like oh you know i can do like a one-off season of something and like critics will love it and i'll get a lot of attention and that along with things like Game of Thrones, Mad Men, Breaking Bad that really like saw TV become like more respected as like an art form. I thought this was funny too. Less than a year after the picture's release. I'm going to say that again because that's that's pretentious. (laughs) Less than a year after Pulp Fiction's release, British critic John Ronson attended a national film school's end of semester screenings and addressed the impact saying, Out of the five student movies I watched, four incorporated violent shootouts over a soundtrack of iconoclastic 70s pop hits. Two climaxed with all the main characters shooting each other at once, and one had two hitmen discussing the idiosyncrasies of the Brady Bunch before offing their victim. Not since Citizen Kane has one man appeared from relative obscurity to redefine the art of movie making. That's in that's I feel like I'm saying interesting too often, but that's very fascinating. <laughs> that's a good that's a good change. I had to... No, it really, like, it really is... It is. That's crazy. No, I, I feel the same way. What wh- if you were that guy? And, like, and telling you, like, how he, like, just came up of what... He was just, like... He was just, like, that annoying guy at the blockbuster that's, like, no, 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 the movie you really want to see. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's just, he like, what he like is now. <laughs> he does. <laughs> no, you, like, overuse of the word interesting is how I felt when we were talking about Star Wars and Titanic so much because they just did... They're some of the most, like, influential, impactful movies, like... <laughs> How many more different ways can you say that? Yeah. Um, there were some criticisms of the film, like people were critical of the hyperviolence or the repeated use of the N-word, mm-hmm. which for some reason when it's Quentin Tarantino says it like five times in a row, yeah. it's just like... And it, you're like, gross. It, yeah. Uh, Spike Lee has kind of kind of come out against him publicly of being like, 
you can't yeah. like you can't do that. And they've there's been I don't know Tarantino's response and Samuel L. Jackson will kind of defend him of being like the people I'm writing for like the characters would say that because they're shitty people. But at the same time, he's the one putting the words in their mouth so you could change yeah, that. You I don't know. The it's just it's it's weird. <laughs> it is. It it makes it's, it doesn't age well. No. Hearing Samuel Jackson didn't like phase me that no. much. No. But hearing Quentin Tarantino, the whitest of white men. Yeah. And just why? I don't know. It's dialed up even more in Django, but I feel like it's less grating because it's more factually correct. Because that's like yeah. Civil War era. But in this, it's like, do you really need to do that? Because, and this is like, so Todd Boyd from the Chicago Tribune, he had argued that the words reoccurrence, he said, has the ability to signify the ultimate level of hipness for white males who have historically used their perception of black masculinity as the embodiment of cool. So I feel like it kind of gave people the excuse to be like, oh, this is oh. cool to say that. I think, that's, I think that's ultimately like the, my biggest beef with it. People aren't going to watch these characters and be like, well, they're terrible people. I don't want to be like them. Right. Because this movie's kind of glorifying these people. Maybe for comedy's sake, but they're still being like, aren't these people like you root for them and like you're supposed to... It just feels very unnecessary and it gross. It did. It was very jarring. Two more pieces of trivia for you. Okay, hit me. In Captain America, The Winter Soldier. <laughs> How do we always get back here? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson plays Nick Fury. Yeah. He fakes his death in that film. Uh-huh. And on his headstone, uh, there is a notable homage to Jules' biblical quote, um, <laughs> where it is Ezekiel twenty five seventeen is the <laughs> is the, ins- the scripture inscripted on That's great. Nick Fury's headstone. I feel like they're the same character. <clears throat> I've actually only seen Nick Fury in... Oh, you haven't seen him pop up that much. No. In, uh, well, The Avengers and Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. That's the only thing I really know him from. You know what I was thinking about this when I was watching it was Captain Marvel is set in 95, so the de-aged Sam Jackson is supposed to be emulating his age in, the, in that movie. Oh, that's probably fiction. why I think that. Uh, the other thing was Community. Two <clears throat> things we we'll always get back to. I love Community. Community did a really great episode parodying um, Pulp Fiction. Uh-huh. That is just fantastic. Everyone should go watch it. It's season two. I think it's like episode 19 or something. They're they're basically planning a surprise party for Abed because he loves Pulp Fiction. They all dress up as different characters. And Pierce is dressed up as the gimp. <laughs> Pierce is like, he like unzips the thing so he can like talk. Has anyone seen this film we're referencing? Am I the hero or the love interest? <laughs> and then Shirley... Shirley, who's dressed up as Samuel Jackson, she's like... Pulp Fiction? Yeah, I saw it on the airplane. It's cute. It's a 30-minute film about a group of friends who like cheeseburgers dancing in the Bible. I wanted to I wanted to know what, who your favorite character was. My favorite character, pound for pound, like on, like how much they're on screen, maybe Harvey Keitel. Mm. Like, he really just killed it. He came in for like five minutes. It was so, so great. Yeah. But it's got to be Samuel Jackson. I was going to say the same thing. Samuel Jackson. He's so charismatic. He's the best part of that movie he is so funny he just man he's got so much charisma and he's just so magnetic i'll even say i'll even say john travolta as well i thought he was so good he had some really great when he's when he drops mia off after reviving her he's just his under (laughs) you know what i mean like everything's so understating just he's really he's just like very messed up if marcellus knew about this incident i'd be in as much trouble as you I seriously doubt that. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go home and have a heart attack. Vincent, do you want to hear my Fox Force 5 joke? 
Sure. I think I'm still a little too petrified to laugh. No, you won't laugh because it's not funny. But if you still want to hear it, I'll tell it. I can't wait. His best performance, right? Gotta be. Okay. It's got. He's, he's His, so like, good in it. Performance though is Greece. That's what I'm. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, no. Most iconic role might be Greece. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Not performance. Yeah, you're right. Or Saturday Night Fever, but like, yes, but like does. dramatic role. He's just really good in this. He was yes. nominated for an Oscar for it. Yeah. But it's Sam Jackson, right? Did you ever watch Phenomenon? No, I know what it or is. Or Michael. Which is the one where he's an angel? Probably Michael. Michael. Which is the one where he is like an albino? What's what's phenomena? Is that where he has like the Phenomenal power to the like? One where he like he shakes the table and it, it plays a joke on the. I haven't seen it for a while. <laughs> I don't remember. But he I've has seen some it. supernatural abilities. Yeah, to yeah. like move things or something. Yeah. Phenomena. Guys, been a lot of weird choices, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's a, such a weird guy. He really is. I posted on Instagram yesterday that it's a video. It's a video of Pitbull dancing at one of his. <laughs> one of his concerts and John Travolta is just doing it with him it was so funny my mom commented on it she sent me a DM what'd she say um you <laughs> <laughs> also I don't know if listeners of this podcast know but I've been to a Pitbull concert I don't did you know that I don't know if I did I went to a Pitbull concert in 2016 <laughs> did you pay for it yeah, I think I paid like 50 bucks. You gotta give... It was really fun. How did you end up there? Did you mean to get there? <laughs> yeah. Were you there to see anyone else? No. <laughs> I was there to see Pitbull. You ordered tickets for Pitbull. Yeah. I went with Do you friend. like Pitbull? <laughs> I don't hate him. <laughs> were you no. like, Pitbull's in... T-? Like, what led to this? Were you like, My oh, friends Pitbull were going. Is- Our friends were going. To Pitbull? Yeah, I went who with... is the who? Who started this domino effect? Who's the Pitbull fan? Uh, Ryan. Ryan's in the Pitbull. Ryan was Pitbull for Halloween that year. <laughs> what? <laughs> he got like five hundred bucks from you guys. Where was he playing? Usana. Were you on the field? Yeah, we were like on. We had lawn seats. We we're right up front. We oh, yeah, well, yeah. If you're gonna see a pit bull, you gotta do it right. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah. So I went to a pit bull concert. So there you go. You're one of the pups. <laughs> you could say that. Um, that's really great. Okay. What was your favorite part of the movie? Uh, the scene where they're cleaning up the car. Let's get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. If I was informed correctly, the clock is ticking. Is that right, Jimmy? Uh, 100%. That gives us 40 minutes to get the f*** out of Dodge. Which, if you do what I say, when I say, it should be plenty. Now, you got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Jimmy, lead the way. Boys, get to work. Please would be nice. Come again? I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better f***ing do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. No, 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 Mr. Wolf. It ain't like that. Your help is definitely appreciated. Mr. Wolf, listen. I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me. That's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the f- car. 
And yeah. le- what was your least favorite part? I mean, <laughs> the part yeah. I would never want to watch again. Oh, but honestly, any of the Bruce Willis parts, no thank you. And not because of him or anything. It just was less compelling. Yeah. Although that chase was... When he's driving around and he thinks yeah, they've outsmarted good. him and then he pulls up and Ving Rhames is standing right in front of him. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's actually really funny. And I, you know what part I do love actually? When he walks up and he's gonna, he's like, he escapes and he's going to leave that pawn shop. And then he's like, no, I'm going to go. I don't think he's being honorable. I think he's like, I better go save this guy. And then maybe... I think he did it because he's like hoping to like balance out that he owes him to go back and save Ving Rhames. Mm-hmm. But I I yeah. think it's so funny upgrading the weapons. Yeah. So I, I talked to, I texted Chris that we were watching this tonight because he really likes Pulp Fiction and asked him if there's anything he wanted like us to talk about. And he did talk oh. about that, like what the weapons mean. And I don't, I remember I looked up stuff about this, but I do remember seeing like him upgrading different weapons and the samurai sword, it's representative of like the honorable warrior <laughs> and how each of the weapons he chose was like very iconic weapons of different like types of cinema. Yeah. And then he went with like the noble oh, hero yeah. should what do. What was the first thing he picked up? He picked up a hammer, hammer and then a baseball bat and then a chainsaw. Yeah. And then just when he looks up, I actually remember the first time seeing this, when he looks up and the camera's at him and you're like, what could he have possibly seen that's better than the chainsaw? And the samurai sword is just so funny. <laughs> It's perfect. Chris also asked if my opinion changed after watching more noir and early crime movies. I'll say this, Chris. I don't think that actually had an impact on how much I like this movie. Uh, but I do think having spent more time with like what movies are and respect of old cinema, I do think I do just appreciate Pulp Fiction more for its merits than I definitely did before. Cause, and I think I was just, I've been more... Learn more. I have learned more and I've been more desensitized to <laughs> content. Yeah. And so I was able just to like find humor in it more than just being put off than I was. Yeah. Um, but he did find a good quote that he pulled from a lot of like two strong influences on this movie is Mean Streets by Martin Scorsese. It's a 70s movie that's like a, like a true to life crime film kind of. Okay. And it is very good. It's with Harvey Keitel as well. And uh, The Killing, which is an early Stanley Kubrick movie, which mm-hmm. is also about kind of like a crime that kind of goes wrong yeah and i think like being more aware of those older films probably did have a pretty good influence on me appreciating the movie more i guess how did it live up to your own personal expectations oh going it was into fine this movie? it was great i it did not live it up to it disappoint. the first time for me but on this rewatch like having just understood a bit more of like the cultural like context around it i think yeah, it really helped you i really liked it it's risen much more in my ranking of all of his films. Okay. What kind of interest does this give you for watching more of his movies? I feel like with every Quentin Tarantino movie I see, I want to see another one. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, that's great. Well, we have at least one more planned um, in the next couple of weeks. We want to be watching Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. I feel like Django is another like, well, I think that's right up your alley of the things that you've enjoyed about his movies. So far, I yeah. think you'll really have a good time there. So we'll do an episode about that. But Well, great. Courtney, if you want to reach the podcast, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram at Wife Watches. You can find us on Twitter at Wife underscore Watches, not the underscore. Mm-hmm. You can email us at MyWifeWatchesMovies at gmail.com. Um, and if you liked this episode, leave us a review or give us a rating. Subscribe to our podcast. It just shows up right there in your feed every time we drop a new episode. We drop a hot one right there for you. Just pops up. Pops up. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. Watch you later. And remember 
Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper, and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers.